Thanks be to God. Amen. What a blessing to join our voices and our hearts and uh, sense that the Lord is faithful to inhabit the praise and the worship of his people. We are at an amazing point in biblical history as we study in the book of Nehemiah. Just to remind you, uh, it follows a time of exile, 50 years of exile, and then all of a sudden things change. Uh, God shakes things up. He stirs uh, the, the emperor Cyrus uh, to make a change and say, well, I'm going to send you folks back. And we saw that in the book of Ezra, how uh, Zerubbabel comes back to rebuild the temple of uh, Jerusalem, the temple of God's people. And so he's the first leader we see. Then we see Ezra. Ezra comes and he says, well, you got the box. How many of you know it's more than a box? Yeah, it's what's inside the box and what's going on there. So he reestablishes worship and the word of God, the centrality of the word of God. So very powerful and important. But then there was still a problem. The city itself was a mess. It was, uh, it was destroyed. It was uh, in, in a terrible way. And the walls were just rubble, were broken down. The gates had been burned. So we have this movement that happens with Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes, now the current king, uh, he says, I'm going to send you back. And I'm going to give you a passage. I'm going to write out your passports. And I'm going to send you with supplies and materials so that you can go back and rebuild the walls. So it will be a real city. It will be a respectable city. So Nehemiah is all about rebuilding walls and gates that provide security and strength. And it's this marvelous image for for us as believers, as people, as body of Christ, and really as as a part of civilization. Uh, It's so important for us to think about these things together. I talk to people all the time who say they relate Because they say, I'm coming out of a time of exile. I'm coming out of a time when I was away from where God wanted me to be. And I'm rebuilding my life. And these things are so very, very helpful uh, for me. So he comes back. Nehemiah arrived back in Jerusalem. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. And he got to work. Uh, He did a reconnaissance mission. He said, I got to see for myself how bad it is. And it was really worse, I think, than he had even heard about. And then he gives a stirring appeal uh, to the people. uh, And it says that they strengthened their hands. I love that phrase. That they got strength to be able to do what God was calling them to do. And Nehemiah said, let us rise up and build. And that, that was the call that he put before them. But immediately, you may remember, there was this opposition that came. And it was from the outside. And we're going to be talking about that uh, today, this weekend, and then also for the next few uh, weekends, uh, because it doesn't go away immediately. Uh, There were these governors uh, in the north and in the east and in the south, and they came around right away to complain about this whole thing. But Nehemiah, he proceeded, he, he set a plan for rebuilding, and he based it on location, relation, and vocation. So he made a plan that would cover all of the parts that needed to be uh, built back up and then built also in terms of family relation and family connection and also the uh, people and their vocation, the things that they were interested in. Uh, I, I think some of the genius of it was to build the whole thing at once and not section by section. 
You know, if you ask me, well, how should we do this? I'd say, well, let's get this part done and then we'll move on to the next and we'll do the part between the fountain gate and the dung gate. We'll get that. But see, if you do that, then they can come and push down or attack part of it. But they started building the whole thing at once. So it was coming up slowly. It was almost probably unnoticeable at first. And we see that in our text today that uh, they begin to get upset about that. (laughs) Uh, He assigned families to be committed and motivated to each section. And he assigned them according to their skills and to their interests. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Uh, What we see in the next few chapters is opposition. And it comes from three different places. First of all, there were these enemies in the surrounding areas. And then there was the enemy of doubt within them. How many of you know that? That's the toughest one sometimes. I mean, the stuff out there we can, you know, push against. But when we begin to doubt ourselves and that begins to build, it it becomes a very scary thing. And then the enemy of sin within the community. We're not going to deal with that today, but it comes up next week in our study. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Some people have been complaining that I don't read enough scripture. Well, not, not really, but, but we're going to read that chapter. And um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please change that today. Take one of the Bibles that uh, is here. Take that home. Put your name in it. Begin to mark it. Begin to study it so that you have uh, the word of God in your life and in your hand. So we're Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Now, when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, we'll break it down their stone wall. Here. Here. O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So, we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. 
By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side when he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now let's stand and let's pray. Father God, it's a big picture that you paint before us, but an amazing moment, an amazing time that we want to understand and we pray will speak to us, perhaps to a concern that we have that's upon us right now, this week, or in the weeks ahead, or perhaps some of the larger issues that we deal with day to day in our world. God, speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can be seated. I was studying this and it occurred to me that if you do anything worthwhile, you're going to face opposition. And you may not even anticipate it. I remember times in my life where suddenly I had enemies I never knew I had. I never would have thought. I've always tried to get along with people. But if you start to do what God wants you to do, you will find opposition. In this case, the opposition uh, came from these governors of the surrounding areas. 
Sambalot uh, was in the north in Samaria, and he's really the primary plotter. And then there's Tobiah the Ammonite. He's from Transjordan, which is, would be modern-day Jordan. Samaria to the north is, is part of Israel today. Uh, and then the last was Geshem the Arab. We talked about these last week. He was the governor in the south. And there was nobody from the west because that's the Mediterranean Sea. But they were really surrounded uh, by these uh, opposing governors. The most significant one probably uh, to talk about is uh, the one in Samaria. Hello. <laughs> um, so who are the Samaritans would be the, the thought that we would want to uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, we hear about the Samaritans in the New Testament. Um, Jesus told a, a parable that we call the parable of the good Samaritan. And in the time of Jesus, that was like an oxymoron. No such thing as a good Samaritan because the Samaritans were despised and the Samaritans despised the Jews. How did that happen? And so we want to know who they were and what was going on. Uh, These were the surviving mixed Jewish people uh, left from the northern ten tribes. Uh, We called them Israel earlier when there was a divided kingdom. And then Judah was the kingdom in the south. And so uh, we know that Jesus talked about them. He, He met with a Samaritan woman at the well and she said, I don't even know why you're talking to me. You know, we, we disagree on where worship is supposed to take place. We, we worship on a different mountain. You, you worship on Mount Moriah. And they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. Uh, they had built a temple there. Uh, so there's this division we see in the New Testament. When did that begin? This is where it started. Uh, Samaritan people uh, were, are mentioned here, but the temple uh, is not mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. But interestingly, there has been archaeological excavation that dates the Samaritan temple. I've been there on Mount Gerizim. Uh, it's still, the, the destruction of that temple still exists. And uh, they've dated it through archaeology to just prior to Nehemiah. So it may have been built during the time of Zerubbabel, during this sort of 50-year period, uh, as maybe even a reaction and response to Zerubbabel building the temple uh, that was in Jerusalem. So Sambalot heard about this wall, and he was very angry that this was going on. He comes down, he represents the Samaritans, and we saw his first response in chapter 2. He was mocking, there was a lot of ridicule, there was accusation. Are you building something? Are you rebelling against the king? Which was not true at all. He was actually had the support of the king. But now it all gets turned up a notch. And he brought the army of Samaria uh, not to attack, but to taunt and to jeer the Jews that were there. So that's what we were hearing in the scripture today. I'll just sort of make some fun of him. I'm going to call him Sambi the Samaritan. How about that? Say that with me. Sambi the Samaritan. Well, he taunted, so we'll just taunt him a little bit, okay? He fires these five taunts. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? They think? Uh, will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of these heaps of rubbish? And, and stones that have been burned, are they good for anything? And, and the stones actually do get degraded and destroyed when they're burnt. And then right next to him is, I'm going to call him Toby the Anamite, uh, and he's uh, Tobiah, but Toby the, let's say that one, Toby the Ammonite, all right? He's from the east, 
And he says, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up, I mean, a fox isn't very big, he'll break down that stone wall. So the question is, what, what do you do when a whole army is out there laughing at you? Uh, how do you face opposition? And Nehemiah shows us, and it's just an amazing set, an amazing series of steps that he takes uh, to respond to this opposition. The first one won't surprise you. He prays. And he is a man of prayer. Uh, Zerubbabel was in the line of David. He was in a kingly line. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. But he was a man of God. He was a man of prayer. Because every time you see him, if, if something happens, he just starts praying. And he says, hear, O our God. It, is, it appears almost like he just right in their faces just starts to pray. And he's praying against them. Uh, maybe you heard that. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. They're despising us. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Interesting thing is that that word at the beginning, hear, is the word shma. And if you're familiar with Judaism at all, you know that there's a whole prayer called the shma. And it says, hear, O Israel. It's a call to Israel. Listen, Israel, hear, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the Shema uh, prayer. And here, he calls on God to listen. Shema, hear, O God, we're being despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. They have really messed up. What a prayer. (laughs) Uh, It's an interesting, it sounds uh, like a vindictive prayer. We find those sometimes in the Bible. You know, I found myself wondering, well, how does that jive with a, a, a verse like 1 Peter 3, 9? That says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And so I, I look back over it. It's very interesting because Nehemiah did not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. I mean, he could have, he could have just gone back at him. You know, he could have just thrown the, the taunting and the insults back. That, you know, that's what we do so many times. We get back on social media and we start typing <laughs> when there's opposition. That's not what he did. He didn't argue with them. He didn't curse them in any sort of way. He just prayed for them. Now, it's an interesting prayer. He says, uh, he says uh, Lord, re- you repay them. Uh, I want you to turn their taunting back on them. He asked them for their guilt not to be covered. Don't forgive them for this. Uh, and even if they sacrifice, don't cover for that. They probably had this alternate uh, temple where they were doing sacrifices. But he prayed that uh, it would not be received as a covering for their sin. You know, it, it also reminds me of uh, Romans twelve nineteen, that says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God says, that's my job. Don't do my job. I'm very good at it. And you're not. <laughs> Don't try to get vengeance. 
That's what God says. He says, I'll take care of that. And the prayer of Nehemiah asks for the Lord to do exactly this, uh, to leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Interestingly, this prayer was answered. If we trace the Samaritans through history, the Samaritans were later devastated by Roman suppression and Muslim conquests. And they still exist today. But there are less than 900 Samaritans in the world today. That's how small that community is today. And, I mean, this was really the prayer. I'm sure that there could have been repentance uh, along the way. uh, But uh, they still exist today. And there's still sacrifices that go on on Mount Gerizim. Uh, So there's only like 840 in, in 2021. So we start with prayer. I mean, when there's opposition... When we're trying to do what God wants us to do, and there's opposition, we, we begin with prayer. We bathe it in prayer. Amen? And if we don't do that, we really mess up from the very get-go. The second thing we see is that they set their mind to work. It says in verse 6, so we, we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. They were making progress, for the people had a mind to work. You know, sometimes we say that. You know, you can do anything that you set your mind to. There's a lot of truth in that, but I would add anything that you set your mind to that God wants done uh, is, is going to, you will be successful in that. They had a mind to work. And so much can be accomplished when we have that mind to, to you know, my dad would always say, get after it. You, you got to get going. You got to get started. Sometimes we say, keep on keeping on. Don't quit. Persevere. So... The adversaries, they just got even angrier. In verse 7, Sambalot and Tobiah, and now there's the, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. There's mosquito bites even. <laughs> and, and they heard uh, that the repairing of the walls was going forward and, and there were breaches that were beginning to be closed. It was becoming more and more strong and formidable. And they were angry. So they began to plot. And the plotting's going to go on for a couple more chapters. But they plotted together. Uh, to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. If you could just create confusion, they didn't have uniforms. You couldn't tell who was who. If they could create confusion within uh, the city, they would get them fighting against themselves. The third thing that we see is, uh, I'm just going to call it, get your guard up. It's a marvelous verse, verse 9. It says, and we prayed to our God, the response, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You know, sometimes this question comes up in churches, especially these days. There have been a lot of bad things that happen across our nation. And they say, well, should we have a security team or shouldn't we just pray? Is it a lack of faith, you know, if we have a security team? Or should should we pray or have a security team? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, and I, I really mean both. And so that's, that's our practice here. We have people that have their eyes open. There are people that are watching. We watch the things that are going on. It's just a really, really good way to do church and to gather together. And also, uh, we pray. We have a prayer covering for protection. And that's what they did here. Uh, they prayed and they made a plan. And the best laid plans are bathed in prayer. This led to a time where this second opposition came up, and that was doubt. So that first opposition was from the outside. The next opposition comes from inside. 
In Judah, that's the surrounding villages. That's the people they were drawing on for resources and for for people to come in and work. Um, It was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. We're just getting too tired. There's too much rubble. We can't do this. This city is a disaster and it should be left. That's what they were saying. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That was the talk of the town. And, or the towns, and it became the inner talk. And once that becomes inner talk, it is a major issue, a major oppression, uh, opposition that happens. The enemy really has almost won the battle if he can stir up enough self-doubt and unbelief. The enemy, that's his first thing, get you to not believe in yourself. And then, and then there's not much left to do. He goes on in verse 11, our enemies said... They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You know what that is? That's a definition of terrorism. If I can scare you with threats, we're going to come among you and we're going to kill you. And and it's the threat that gets us paralyzed. I have a dear friend who lived in Israel for 18 years and, and then moved back to New York and after the 9-11 disaster, I said, what did you do? He said, I went into work. I said, why, why did you do that? Everybody was running away and, and hunkering down and that sort of thing. He said, I learned in Israel that that's exactly what they want you to do. When there's a bombing or a shooting or something that happens, they want you to stop and be paralyzed and don't go to work and don't do what you were doing. That's the purpose. Then they've won. You don't have to do anything else. It's fear. It's that fear factor. And we hear so much talk about fear in our world. There are all these things that, that seem to scare us. And that's, that's the way that functions. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said ten times, you must return to us. So they're coming in from the town saying ten times over and over. You must return to us. You've got to come back. You've got to quit. You've got to come back. It's terrible. They're, you're going to die in there. And that's, that's what was occurring, this, this doubt that was spreading. It was working. The enemy can get you to quit your routines, to quit your, your process, to quit the progress that you've made. The enemy has won. And so Nehemiah had to set out now to overcome this enemy, this oppression, uh, this... Uh, doubt that was spreading and he did that in several ways first of all he pulled them together by families one thing we seem to care about so much and he challenges them about this in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places i station people by their clans by their families your family groups there's strength in numbers but there's also power in families And so much in in the book of Nehemiah is about strengthening your family so that the family of faith can be strong. The walls can be strong. The defenses can be strong. The gates will be strong. And so we see that. The fifth thing that he did, I'm just going to call it armor up. It says that they, they were stationed by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Now think about this. These families probably had never really used weapons, but he stationed them, whole families. I get this picture in my mind of, of you know, the teenagers out there with spears. This is cool. 
and the, and the little girls out there with bows and arrows. Um, probably, they weren't trained to be soldiers, but you know, if you look from a distance and you see, there, wow, there are spears and there, there are bow, people with bows and arrows and there, there are people with swords that are there. They're all, the, all around. It, it's a formidable image. You don't want to attack in that situation. And so that's what he did. There was such wisdom in this. As near as we can tell, we read on through the book of Nehemiah, these families and workers, they never used these weapons. You know, you know, the best weapon is the one you never use. I've talked to people who have weapons and they say, I've never used my weapon. I pray I never will. And so it's an amazing thing, this image that these families pull together. And, and this was a deterrent for sure. But we also have a different kind of armor that I don't want us to miss. In Ephesians chapter 6, we talk about the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need armor. What is that armor? I mean, you can read on through there. Some of you may have even memorized this passage, but we have a belt of truth. Everything hangs from truth. We have the truth. Jesus is the truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness, and that defends us. We have the shoes of readiness to share the gospel of peace. We have a shield of faith that extinguishes darts, the fiery darts, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The most important thing. This weekend, Pastor Ann was, is teaching with the student message about the temptation of Jesus. And every time that the devil came with his temptation, why don't you turn this uh, stone into a rock? Aren't you hungry? He, he rebukes, he just answers it with what? Word of God. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. Every time, word of God. And so, as we hide the word of God in our hearts, we're ready. The enemy doesn't have a chance. I mean, the best concealed carry I know is the word of God in your heart. Because you're ready in in any situation. The sixth thing that he did was to speak faith over the people. Oh, you know, the fear factor goes around. The, the, the frightening things we read about or that we hear about. And really, our media is so full of it because it's what sells. It's what people listen to. Uh, there's so much uh, fear that is spread. But listen to what he says. He says, I, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Wow. What a leader. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your family, for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Be ready to fight and to defend. It's such a powerful statement that verse 14, you know, to say, do not be afraid. Don't fall for it. Remember how great and awesome the Lord is. Isn't the Lord bigger than the stuff that we begin to fear? been talking all about this balloon in the sky. I think they shot it down overnight. You know, God's bigger than the balloon. Yeah, we forget that sometimes. I don't don't mean to say they did the wrong thing, but we don't need to be afraid 
in our world. Our world is afraid. We need to bring faith into our world. Trust in God. Do we, are we going to believe in God? That he has a plan. That he has a desire for us to, to really thrive and to grow in him. That's, that's the call that's upon us. And the seventh thing is to be ready to rally. The construction continues and, and God frustrated the plan of the enemy. But the, and they didn't let down their guard. They didn't stop, you know, uh, keeping their guard up. Um, Nehemiah says that half of his personal bodyguards, they work construction. That must have been interesting. I think these were the guys that were sent with him uh, from Persia. And, uh, and he said, well, you're going to have to work. <laughs> and they switched off. Uh, but they held weapons and wore armor. Those carrying burdens lightened their load so they could carry a weapon. I don't know what that looked like, but I imagine somebody trying to carry a stone and they got it so it could be strapped on, but they could still keep an arm free with a sword. They had a sword ready. And, and it becomes the image that, that rises out of Nehemiah. It's very famous. A sword and a trowel, both together. It's the work along with the protection the defense that went on. And so the builders were wearing a sword. And then the trumpet, the shofar, uh, would rally everyone to respond to any attack. So they're all spread out all around this wall, around the city. And then the shofar, when, when it's blown, he says, now everybody rallied to that point. So if they saw someone coming, an attack coming, they would blow. The shofar, we think of it as a worship instrument, but it's actually a war instrument. And worship actually is spiritual warfare. So it's a call to spiritual warfare. But they would blow the shofar and rally together to say, no, you're not taking this city. You're not going to push this one family and overpower them. We're all here. We're all together in this. It's a super powerful image right at the end of this passage, this call to rally. I see it sometimes. Um, I see it a lot, actually, in, in the life of the church. I see it when there's one person and they have a devastating loss and there's this rally. We, we don't blow a shofar, but usually it goes out on social media and people let people know. And then there's this rally that comes around to help and aid that person. It's amazing. I see it again and again, this rallying that comes together. We also see it in times of great joy. Um, last, uh, on the Friday evening, uh, we were at a wedding, and the Pearsons are here. It was just a beautiful, beautiful wedding. What was so fun to watch was um, uh, Julia and Joe were being married, and they were bringing uh, together their plans to have their wedding. And uh, the outdoor wedding, we were all praying that the weather would cooperate. But to see the body of Christ just come around to help and to prepare and to make this a delightful, wonderful celebration... That's body of Christ. And it's why we have small groups. It's why we have small group ministries like Lifeline. And we have uh, Sunday school classes and Bible studies. And we have our midweek classes, our primetime classes. It's, that's how we get to know each other. And that's how we know that, yes, we need to rally. We need to blow the shofar and gather around this situation or this person. So what opposition are you facing and, and you may not be facing strong opposition now, but these are such powerful things. How do we respond? Number one, we pray. 
Because we're not going to make it without prayer. All the way through. I just love the prayer life of Nehemiah. He just just starts. (laughs) He just goes in. It's amazing. Set your mind to work. It's going to take work. And I'm not going to... I remember uh, Pastor Ian's uh, grandma said, we're not afraid of hard work in our family. And and she got that. (laughs) We're not afraid of hard work. We're going to join in. Get your guard up. We have enemies and we need to be careful and and prepared and responsive. Uh, Pull together by families. We need to strengthen our families because families are the fundamental building blocks uh, of, of the body of Christ. As we proclaim and as we protect the gospel. Armor up. We need the full armor of God. Ephesians 6. And we need to speak faith into one another. Speak faith over one another. I love that. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. And be ready to rally. To come around. You know, we, we don't have the privilege of just living separately and distantly. I mean, we are maybe saved people, but we need to be ready to rally and come together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these images. They, they speak so much to my heart and my life. And I pray for each person who's hearing this, that if they are facing opposition, that they might glean from this, take from this the tools, take from this the things that are needed for their situation. We are so grateful that you never abandon us. You never will leave us or forsake us. We give thanks. And we ask that you would reveal in us the things that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and really, the Lord's Supper is a rally point. We rally around the cross of Christ and the truth of his gospel. If you don't have one of the little communion kits, if you'll raise your hand, our usher will bring that to you. If you did not get one of those, does everybody have one? If you don't have one of the little communion kits, communion is uh, a wonderful gift that the Lord Jesus gave us. Uh, so that we could connect and remember and recall his great sacrifice. And it's, uh, it's for believers. So uh, if you are a believer, I invite you to engage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. We ask that as we share in these elements, the breaking of bread and the cup, that we might experience that we might know your presence in our midst and the great, great love that you have poured out for us. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you for your gracious covering of our sin, for your gracious love poured out over us. And we pray that we might walk in a way that carries the gospel safely, carries the gospel everywhere that we go. In Jesus' name, amen.